Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you're new with us, we'd like to welcome all the new folks. Good to see you and uh, let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And uh, for the last few weeks, we have been in chapter 15, primarily looking at verses 1 through 8, presenting a series we've entitled The Vine and the Branches. Now, I believe this is one of the most important studies we as Christians can undertake because the whole Christian life is really all about bearing fruit for the glory of God. Jesus told his disciples in this discourse that this is what the Father desires from his children's lives and uh, that this is what he is actively uh, trying to produce through pruning, which we studied a few weeks ago that we bear more and more fruit in our Christian lives. Now, let me say this. As soon as many professing Christians today hear that we are presenting a series that teaches Christians what spiritual fruit is and uh, how they can produce more of it in their Christian lives, a lot of folks today just shut their brains off. They're not interested. They're just not interested. You see, the whole premise of fruit bearing is that I do something to bring forth something that blesses others. As we have said, fruit is not for the benefit of the tree or vine. It's for the benefit of others. We are connected to Christ. We are branches. He is the vine. And the fruit that God wants to bring forth from our lives is not about doing anything to bless us directly. Uh, it's using us to bless others. A very important point, but a lot of people don't want to hear that. They have adopted the last day's mentality Paul warned us about in 2 Timothy 4, uh, and that is that uh, in the last days, people in the churches, many would not want to hear uh, sound doctrine, the Word of God taught, but would instead gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Look, if I was to ever as advertise a series entitled How to Be Happy in Five Easy Steps, or... The Ten Principles of a Successful Life, we'd be packed, okay? We'd be standing room only. They'd be out in the halls. What most people don't understand is that when you put yourself at the center of your life and make everything revolve around you, you're never going to try find true happiness, fulfillment, success uh, in life, not in God's eyes. And that's because all, the, all those things come as byproducts of a Christ-centered life, a life that seeks to give, not get, and to serve and not be served by putting others' needs above your own. So a lot of folks don't get that, and they're running around frantically, Christians now, looking for happiness, fulfillment, even success, um, but putting themselves in the, in the very center and pursuing these things as direct pursuits, not realizing, and this takes us back to chapter 13, not realizing that Jesus told us, if you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, then make it all about serving others. Because when you make others the focus, live a Christ-centered life, that's what Jesus did. He was others-centered to the max. Um, a wonderful thing happens. You begin to experience everything you're looking for, but not finding by direct pursuit, you begin to experience as a byproduct of living the life God has called us as Christians to live. Guys, it's a life where we give, not get. A life where we serve and not look to be served. Warren Worsby in his book, 
the five secrets of living. He said, and I quote, the secret of living is fruit bearing. God did not create you and Christ did not die for you that you might go through life getting. God created you and Christ purchased you that you might invest your life giving. If you refuse to bear fruit, you will miss the true meaning and glory of the Christian life. If you yield to Christ and permit his life to create his permit his life to create his fruit through you, then you will really live. Are you willing to be a branch? Then tell him so. Are you willing to uh, are you willing for his life to work in and through you? Then tell him that. By an act of faith yield yourself to Christ for the purpose of bearing fruit, for the purpose of fulfilling that wonderful plan God has for you and you alone, end quote. So this morning, guys, I want to continue looking at our Vine and Branches series. And uh, so far in this series, we have looked at Jesus as the true vine and then the Father as the vine dresser. Let's look at verse 1, where Jesus said, I am the true vine and, the and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Now, as we have been saying, the goal of the vine dresser, the Father, is that we bear more and more fruit. Now, one of the reasons, and of course, the main reason is that God wants to receive glory from our lives, yes. But one of the reasons the Father desires that we keep bearing fruit is because, listen, he doesn't want us to become complacent in our Christian lives, which would be detrimental to our walks. From a practical standpoint, listen, we need to keep producing fruit. That's just, otherwise you're going to shrivel up and die. And I don't mean lose your salvation, I just mean spiritually, okay? But here's the thing, this is going to require a constant commitment to constantly tend, cultivate uh, your heart before the Lord and your very life. Look, if you've ever done any gardening, you know that it takes a lot of effort to grow things. And once you have filled your garden with all kinds of beautiful plants, flowers, or even vegetables, that's not when the work ends. Okay, I've planted everything, I can rest now. No, in many ways, that's when the work actually really begins, right? You have to keep working in that garden. Every gardener knows that after all the hard work of cultivating the soil, planting the seed, or even planting the seedlings is done, if you become complacent and stop tending to that garden, well, before long, the weeds start to grow up, and they will, mark it, they will choke out and destroy everything beautiful that took so long and so much effort to grow. The same is true with the garden of our hearts and lives for God. The moment we become complacent in our Christian life, in other words, you know, stop going to church on a regular basis, stop reading the Bible uh, on a regular basis, you know, stop having our devotion, stop serving the Lord. Well, that's when the weeds of the old life begin to grow again. And if left unchecked, they will choke out everything the Spirit has grown in our lives up until that point. You say, what are the weeds? Well, the weeds very simply are sin, compromise, carnality. Uh, the world is a big part of it. Remember what John said in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse, verses 15 through 17, I believe? He said, the devil has designed the world and everything in it to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. The devil is 
always trying to work to get us to focus our attention not on God, not on what he wants, not on glorifying him by living our lives, but to love ourselves more than God, to love the world more than God, to change our focus from the Lord and his work to the world and what it has to offer. The, the devil is constantly trying to use the world in our fallen sinful nature, the flesh, to get us to fall into sin. And when that happens, he knows that we'll begin to choke out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But be careful, all right? Be careful that you don't make the mistake of thinking that we're only talking in terms of, you know, quote-unquote, big sins. Okay. Solomon warned us in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, it is the little foxes that spoil the vines. And I don't think he was really talking about foxes or real vines. I think what he was really saying is the little sins that often rob us of our fruitfulness for God. Not, it's not the big sins. You know, it's not adultery or, uh, you know, robbing banks or something, I don't know, that really destroys our walk with God. It's the little everyday things. Listen, there is no such thing as small sins or little sins in the eyes of God, just to get on that out in the open. But we think certain sins are not that big a deal. And certainly, most many Christians think that if I stay away from the big sins, that somehow God allows me to indulge in some of the little things, like little white lies, you know, uh, coveting what my neighbor has, those kind of things. Those things don't seem like a big deal, not in our culture anymore, right? Uh, you know, look, at, look at the culture around us, what they're buying into. Uh, the things they don't think are sins at all that we know are. But we kind of think, you know, if we stay away from the big stuff, maybe God allows me to indulge in the little sins, not realizing that in God's eyes there are no little sins. And they will often be used by the devil because they fly under our moral radar to rob us of the very fruitfulness the Father is trying to produce in our lives, which is what we're talking about in this uh, whole series. But... Um, When I talk about these things that fly under our moral radar, I'm thinking of things like, you know, lying, covetousness, gossip, laziness. Um, I mean, how can they be so bad? Everyone's doing them. Well, yeah, everybody in the world's doing that, but we're not of the world. We've been delivered from the world. Now, what often leads to carnality in the Christian life, uh, and then, of course, the backsliding to sin in our lives as Christians, uh, is often simply just slowing down in our walk with God. Slowing down, getting kind of lazy. I'll just read these to you. You can write these down. This is just a flavor of what I'm talking about. In Titus 2.14, Paul told a young pastor named Titus about how Jesus gave himself for us. And this is why he gave himself for us, to redeem us, of course, uh, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Listen, who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul said, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap. He's using that imagery, that metaphor of growing fruit in our lives. And of course, why did he admonish us not to grow weary in well-doing? Because, again, if, if, if those who grow things for a living understand that a lot of work goes into cultivating the soil, planting the seed. Then you have to water it and 
take care of it before you ever see anything poke its way out of the ground, and certainly a long time before you can pick fruit. There's a lot of work that goes into farming and bearing fruit, uh, and sometimes, you know, as Christians, we get discouraged. It's taken longer than we would like. I'm not growing as fast as I would like. I'm a, I'm a failure as a Christian. Why even bother? The devil is whispering all that in our ears all the time, right? Paul says, don't grow weary and well-doing. We're going to reap, but you can't quit. You can't give up, right? Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't lose heart. That's the big thing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul the Apostle said that we as Christians must not lag in diligence. We've got to be on fire. We must be fervent in spirit when we serve the Lord. Fervent in spirit, right? I will have you turn to Psalm 92. Because I thought this was really um, relevant to what we're talking about this morning. Psalm 92, let's pick it up in verse 12. The psalmist said, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Now, a couple observations that jumped out at me. Uh, what, from what the psalmist said. First of all, you will not flourish in your Christian life outside the house of God. Do you see it there? You will not flourish in your Christian life outside the house of God. You need to be in, and I'm talking to the choir, forgive me. You need to be in a local church plugged in and using your gifts. Now, I thank God for the technology that lets us live stream. And this was a big blessing during the lockdown, during COVID. For some people, though, it's gotten to be a habit now. Look, if you can't come out because you're a shut-in or you got some medical condition and you can't get out to church physically, God gives grace. And I'm sure he's got a ministry for you, maybe a prayer ministry or something else where you can, you know, you can use your gifts. But for the vast majority of people, they can come out to church. And the Bible says, look, if you can come out to church, you need to come out to church. Don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. Why? Because we need each other. We need each other. We need to look into each other's eyes and go, you need some encouragement. Hey, let me pray with you. You don't look like, you look like you're down this morning, right? I mean, and, and beside the fact we all have spiritual gifts that we need to use. We have to get plugged in, right? So this idea that I don't need church, I can flourish as a Christian outside of church, you're deceiving yourself. That You're deceiving yourself. That's, that's number one, right? And secondly, too many Christians are no longer bearing fruit in their old age. Didn't the psalmist say that? They're going to bear fruit in their old age, you're going to flourish? Well, too many Christians are not bearing fruit in their old age because they've retired. I'm just going to be honest with you. They've retired, okay? Nobody gave them a gold watch, but they checked out. In other words, they have come to a place where they imagine that they have, listen, done their share of service. I've heard people say, I have put in my time. You put in your time. I'm sure God's blessed to hear you looked at it like a prison sentence. <laughs> so service was like, you know, you, you put in your time. Wow. I'm sure those were blessed who you ministered to while in prison. But, but, but I've heard that. I, I put in my time, Pastor. 
It's time for others, the younger people, to take over and carry on the work. Folks, listen. Listen to me. That is a dangerous and often destructive mindset which plays right into the devil's hands. If you don't think so, look at David. You can read 2 Samuel 11 this week, right? David was in his mid-50s when he had been, you know, been king many years and amassed a great amount of wealth. And so because of it, he built himself a new cedar palace. You can check it out, okay? And because, you know, in his 50s now and, you know, living in the trenches all, you know, from the spring till the fall, that was battle season, okay? And living in the trenches, eating K-rations, I don't know what they ate, but I'm sure it wasn't the best, uh, okay? And, uh, but he was tired of that. He felt like, you know, let the younger guys fight the battles of the Lord. I'm going to stay home. So it says, to, be, to begin 2 Samuel 11, in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David stayed home and sent his general Joab to fight the battles of the Lord, right? But because David was not, was not where he was supposed to be, he had retired from serving God. It gave him a lot of free time, and as the old saying goes, idleness is the devil's workshop. And so one night out of boredom, he walked on top of his palace, which was a patio in Israel. The, the roofs are functional, they're patios. And so he looked, and down below was a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. He lusted after her, sent a few servants to take her and brought her back. And you know the whole sordid story of David and Bathsheba, right? This would never have happened if David hadn't retired and was still fighting the battles of the Lord. I mean, it's very important that we understand this, okay? That, you know, if David had been where God had wanted him to be, he would have never been in a place where Satan could tempt him and uh, take him out. David was never the same guy after his sin with Bathsheba. Before that, his trajectory kept going upward in life, okay? After that, downward. Rebellion in his own family. His walk was never the same. God forgave him, but he was a damaged man. All because he retired and wasn't doing what God had called him to do. Just keep those things in mind, okay? But in our, our outline for this uh, study, we have looked at uh, the true vine, Jesus Christ. Then we have looked at the vine dresser, the Father. Now we want to turn our attention to the vine branches. And I want to just start this morning by looking at what we have called Judas branches. Judas branches. Now, if you're new with us and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Hang in there. It'll become clear in a moment, okay? We're talking about the vine, Jesus, and the branches. And we want to look, first of all, at Judas branches. Look, look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but this section of John 15 is very controversial. It's very controversial. Commentators debate, who, who are these branches that don't bear fruit? These branches that are cast out and burned. Three main interpretations have arisen from what Jesus said, or with regard to what Jesus said. First interpretation says, well, the burned branches, they are Christians who have lost their salvation. All right, They were attached to Christ. Uh, didn't live a holy life, didn't walk with the Lord like they should, so he cut them off, didn't produce fruit like 
he wanted. So he cut them off and they get thrown into hell eventually. I don't buy that because I don't believe a true Christian can lose their salvation. I mean, we've already studied John 5, John 8, excuse me, John uh, 10, verses 28 and 9, uh, John 5, 24, uh, Paul, Romans 8, verse 1. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, right? Uh, condemnation being hell. We have passed from death to life and so on, right? Uh, so I don't buy that. I, don't, I reject that first interpretation. Number two, uh, people say, well, the burn branches represent Christians who, you know, will lose rewards but not their salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, let's look at that for just a second, okay? The language doesn't seem to uh, imply that what, that's what Jesus had in mind. Now, he's talking about uh, dead branches. He's talking about branches that are cut off, thrown away, that wither and are burned. That doesn't sound like the language of losing your gifts. Your, I'm sorry, your rewards someday, okay? Number three, some interpret this to mean the burned branches refer to professing Christians who, like Judas, are not genuinely saved and therefore will eventually be judged and sent to hell. They, they'll be burned. Now, I personally hold to that last interpretation of the three. I believe that the branches that don't bear fruit are a reference to Judas and all who are like him. In other words, phony or counterfeit uh, people, disciples, people who look genuine but are only superficially connected to Christ, like Judas. And that's why some have called these branches Judas branches. These are professors, but not possessors. Remember Paul said that to Titus in chapter 116, many profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Many people profess, hey, I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. That's always a red flag for me. How long have you been saved? What's your Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. How, you were born a Christian. Oh, yeah. Okay, now I understand. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of people who are in churches who profess faith in Christ. And you know what? They actually believe the basics. But then, then again, so do the demons. They believe and tremble. They're not going to heaven. Head knowledge is important. That's how the truth of God enters our lives, through our ears, processed in our minds. But eventually we need to bring it to our hearts and make a commitment to Christ. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Leave that there for a second. Uh, you know, Jesus gives us three things that characterize these branches. These, these are churchgoers. Uh, these uh, branches, these people. First of all, he said they don't bear fruit. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, guys, every genuine Christian, listen to me, every genuine Christian produces fruit. As I have said many times with some Christians, you may have to look hard and long to find a couple of shriveled grapes somewhere, but they're there. <laughs> they're, they're there somewhere. I'm going to read you some passages. Just write them down. We don't have time to turn to everything uh, along these lines, right? Matthew 7, verse 16. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Verse 20, therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Look, the fruit doesn't make the tree, right? I mean, apples don't make a tree an apple tree. They just prove it is one, right? I mean, you take me, you know, in the dead of winter out to some orchard somewhere, right? Now, I'm, I'm not a tree guy. I'm not a dendrologist. Or I don't know what. You, I can't tell you an oak tree from an apple tree in the dead of winter, right? There's no leaves. There's nothing, right? If you were to say, here, there's, there's oak trees, there's maple trees, there's apple trees. What, what's what? I, I don't know. Show me the apple tree. I, I don't know. If you give me till spring, okay, <laughs> then I'll tell you. Because the apple trees produce fruit. The fruit doesn't make it an apple tree. It just bears witness to the fact it is an apple tree. The fruit doesn't make us Christians. It just bears witness to the fact that we are Christians, people connected to Christ with the life of God flowing through us, right? Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he, John the Baptist, is, it's talking of John the Baptist, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, the idea is John was baptizing people, right? Uh, in Christian baptism, we wait for somebody to receive Christ, and then we take them down to you know, the lake, the pool, whatever, and we dunk them in there, right? It's a symbol that they've been dead and buried, and they're living a new life for Christ, okay? Uh, but John was saying, look, if God's really working in your heart, prove it, you know, and a lot of these folks had received, I mean, they were really converted. John says, prove it by showing me the fruit. See, fruit was essential in John's mind to determine if somebody was really saved. Um, you know, but the fruit came first. Show me the fruit, because unbelievers don't bear fruit is the idea. Okay? In Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, Paul is talking about our old life. Remember how it was before we got saved is the idea. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Right? What fruit uh, did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death? Paul is saying, remember before you got saved? You didn't have any Christian fruit back then, right? How many people in this room before you got saved uh, went to church faithfully, uh, read the Bible faithfully in your own house every day, right? Uh, wanted to tell others about Christ, wanted to attend prayer meetings. Uh, how many people before we got saved ever wanted to do that kind of no, Nobody, basically. Because that is a, a fruit, those are fruits of a new life, a life in Christ, right? Paul, so you didn't have any of that, those fruits before you got saved. Guys, unbelievers can't bear spiritual fruit, no matter how religious they are, because they have no spiritual life flowing through them. They have no spiritual life in them because they are not connected to Jesus by faith. Look, even Judas, who walked with Jesus and was, listen, close to him, didn't bear any spiritual fruit because he wasn't really connected to Jesus by saving faith. I'm not saying Judas had no faith. He didn't have saving faith. How do I know that? Well, first of all, he denied the Lord. Somebody who was a genuine Christian might backslide. 
but you never deny the Lord, renounce him, walk away, I'm done. This is not for me, right? But more importantly, Jesus said in John 6 and in John 13, Judas was never saved. Judas was never saved. Oh, but he was a disciple. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Yeah, that's right. That's the point I'm making. Being in close proximity to Jesus is not enough. When people come to church, and I did when I, before I got saved as a Roman Catholic, you know, we would go to church, right? And um, I felt like I was, you know, spending my time with God, you know? I didn't really enjoy church before we were born again, right? Uh, yeah, but I went. When I came out, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really look forward to it, but I walked out feeling good about myself because I'd done my duty. I'd done my duty. My obligation was, I mean, I felt good. Me and God are good. Now, I don't know what I thought. I can't remember exactly what all I was saying when I felt like that, but me and God are good. Um, but this is the idea. A lot of people come to church and are close to, they're in close proximity. I mean, where, where else do you go if you want to be in close proximity to Jesus? You go to church, right? And a lot of unbelievers who are religious do that, right? What they don't understand is you can go to church and be like Judas in close proximity to Christ, but never having that vital, real connection uh, that saving faith provides where you are literally now connected to Christ where the life of God is flowing from God into your life and bearing fruit. Your life is being transformed. Somebody said after to me after first service, I don't think my daughter is saved. I, I've never seen real fruit being born in her life. And of course, this lady had been a churchgoer all her life. But nobody ever lived for the Lord in the church that she was going to, and she didn't understand the difference until somebody brought her to our church, and we just studied the word and God got a hold of her heart and she went from a churchgoer who was a nightclubber to somebody who was serious about God her whole life changed it revolutionized her view of life she was living with a the guy they got married this is fruit guys this is the fruit of a changed life so many people come to church hear the word nod in agreement walk out and never do anything with it Look, in nature, you could have, uh, you know, branch from an apple tree. You can snap it off, and you can lay it right next to that tree, a half inch away from that tree. Is that going to make a difference? Is that going to bear fruit anymore? No, because it's not connected, right? Close, but not connected. That's how a lot of people are who attend churches. Again, they're close in proximity to Jesus, but they're not really connected. Guys, phony Christians can fake fruit. They can fake fruit. They can pretend to bear fruit. And to the undiscerning, it looks often like the real thing. But their fruit doesn't last. Jesus said in verse 16, the fruit he produces in a person's life, it lasts, right? It doesn't last because they themselves don't remain. They don't last. Which brings us to the next point under the Judas branches section of our study. Judas branches, they don't bear fruit. And number two, they don't abide. They don't abide. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. The key concept that the entire passage revolves around. 
is that of abiding in the vine, or in other words, abiding in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk about abiding, which is one of the most important concepts in the Bible, in the New Testament. We're going to talk about abiding in detail next time as we turn the focus of this study from the Judas branches to the Jesus branches, those who are truly connected to Christ uh, and are bearing fruit. But for now, let me just say that the word abide comes from the Greek word meno, and it's a word that means to remain, to continue, to stay around, okay? Those who are really saved, they stay around, they, they remain. In other words, they continue in the faith and in their walk with Jesus. In John 15, Jesus used the concept of abiding, listen, not as a condition for attaining or maintaining salvation, but as the evidence that a person has truly accepted him as their Lord and Savior. Look, I realize true believers can backslide, okay? That, that can happen. We're not talking about that. This is different, okay? Peter backslid. Uh, he was restored. We'll talk about that later when we get to that section of John's Gospel. But what Jesus is dealing with now is not backslidden Christians. He's dealing with, and our, for our study this morning, with people who come to church, attach themselves to him, superficially and maybe even think they're saved but god knows the firm foundation of the lord stands having this seal the lord knows those who belong to him god knows the heart right it's important that you understand that abiding doesn't make you a true disciple of christ it just proves that you are one many phony so-called disciples of christ when he laid out the cost of true discipleship walked away from him Follow him no more. Read John 6 again, right? When Jesus began to really lay down the cost of true discipleship, he likened it to eating food. The food enters your mouth, goes down to your stomach, it's digested, and then assimilated every part of your body. It literally becomes one with you. That's the kind of commitment Jesus is looking for, that we become one with him. Now, he did say things that were kind of revolutionary. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. This guy's off the wall. He's talking about cannibalism. Let's get out of here. And, you know, the Lord purposely framed it in that way to chase away all the phonies. He wasn't, our, our Savior was not into crowds. He was into hearts, okay? He was into hearts. He, he, Jesus didn't walk out one morning, you know, when he was going to minister and said to Peter, Oh, look at the crowd. Wow, this is really, you know. He could care less about how many people were there. What he was looking for is hearts. He wanted to touch hearts for the kingdom of God, right? Um, but when he laid out the cost of true discipleship, many followed him, excuse me, left and followed him no more. And then he turned to the 12 and said, will you also go? And here's where Peter had one of his shining moments. Poor Peter, you know. I mean, he often just, you know, stopped for a second to change what foot was in his mouth. But, but we love Peter. I identify more with Peter than Paul, with, and put it that way. Um, but Peter had one of his shining moments. Jesus said, are you also going to leave? Peter said, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's the heart of a true disciple. That's the heart of a true disciple. Lord, some of the things you say are hard to understand. And some of the things you command us to do are hard to live. But I, I can't go back. There's nothing in the world for me anymore. So I have to go forward. I can't go backward. That's the heart of a true disciple. But listen, we're talking about people that don't abide, don't remain. I think John 
in his first epistle. You don't have to turn to it. I'll paraphrase it. Uh, 1 John 2.19 really nailed it. Okay, He said, again, I'm paraphrasing, many join themselves to our groups, our, our churches around you know, where we had been minister, right? As many people had joined, have joined themselves to Christian churches, but they were never really one of us. For if they had been truly one of us, genuinely saved, they were, would have remained with us. But because they departed, it proved they were never genuine. If you're really a child of God, you're going to bear fruit and your fruit is going to remain. I know people that have come to church, prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, were out there witnessing and sharing. You know, looked like they were bearing all kinds of fruit. After a few weeks or a few months, they left. Their fruit didn't remain. They didn't continue. And it was an evidence that, you know, they really had not made a true commitment to Christ. Uh, look, the evidence of salvation is continuing in your relationship with and service for Jesus, which, of course, includes continuing to follow his teachings, staying in the word, right, and walking in his truth every day. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 31? He said to a group of people, if you abide, again, may know, uh, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Greek is aletheis. You are truly my disciples. If you continue in my word, right? I have been saved for over 40 years now. And in my studies, there's a, there are numerous passages. I don't fully understand what they mean yet. Okay, not, not basics, okay? I'm talking about, there are, people ask me about certain passages. I say, you know, I, I'm really not sure. But it, I'll give you what I think, but I, I'm really not sure. But never once in my 40 plus years of knowing Jesus did I ever pick up the Bible and say, ah, oh, this is baloney. I don't believe this stuff. I mean, not once. Because when the Holy Spirit moves inside at the moment of conversion, the spirit of truth who inspired the Bible, the truth of God. There are things that we don't understand, you know, but we know one thing. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus came. He died for our sins, rose again. He's coming back to, to get us, to take us to heaven. These are things that I have no doubt about. Never have. Never have. Um, but let me, let me say this, okay? Um, Again, continuing the faith isn't a um, condition for maintaining salvation. It's the evidence of true saving faith in a person's heart. Um, when Jesus said, again, chapter 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out and burned. He was not talking about salvation conditioned upon our faithfulness to abide. He was referring to superficial Judas branches, will eventually show their true colors and depart from the faith. Now, at this point, somebody would object and say, but pastor, didn't Jesus say every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away? Doesn't that prove he's talking about true Christians? Because listen, true Christians are in him, right? Look, don't let the phrase, in me, throw you or bother you. 
I don't believe Jesus is speaking literally there, but in a figurative sense. You say, what do you mean? Well, in other words, they appear to be in him, just like Judas appeared to be in Christ and genuine in his faith. Look, Jesus gave analogies. He gave parables, right? And uh, it's important to understand that an analogy is different from a strict theology presentation. Let me, let me read you a couple passages. Luke 8, 18. And, and how that something can look one way, but not really be that way, okay? Therefore, Jesus said, take heed how you hear. People come to church, they hear different ways. Some people hear with their, their heads, others with their hearts. Some walk out unchanged, some walk out totally converted. You get the idea. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he, listen, seems to have, will be taken from him. In other words, there are people that seem to have the truth in their hearts. They come to church, they hear the word of God. But God knows the heart. And he knows that the word is not penetrating the heart. To the rest of us, we think, oh, they're getting it. They're in church every week, right? But if they don't embrace the truth, the light, eventually God says, then you're not worthy of the light. And he turns off the lights and they cannot believe. Because, again, God is looking for people that love the truth, want to embrace the truth, live the truth, and so on. Right? Some people are just churchgoers and they seem to have the truth. They seem to be connected to Christ, is my point. In Romans 11, verses 19 and 20. Paul's talking about the Jewish people who are connected to God by covenant and how they thought they were genuinely saved, going to heaven, right? Um, but Paul said in this passage that they weren't really, many of them weren't really believers. Of course, many were Moses, Abraham, David, Daniel, of course. But many Jews were not converted. They believed because they were children of Abraham by birth, they were automatically saved, right? And because they were circumcised. Um, but Paul said they were not producing fruit. That's why God has saved us. So God eventually snapped the nation off and grafted in mostly Gentiles, the church, to do the work God is calling his people to do, to bear fruit in the world so that people come to Christ, right? Um, again, it's possible in an analogy to be connected to something and not be actually and vitally connected. In other words, to not be the real thing. That's my point. When Jesus said, every branch in me, he wasn't speaking in a, in a strict theological sense. This is when Paul used that phrase. The whole theme of Ephesians is in Christ, right? And the idea is that Paul was speaking there in a strict theological sense about being in Christ, positionally saved and so on. Uh, he wasn't using an analogy. Jesus is. Jesus is. And guys, you can't push an analogy or a parable to the nth degree. It's going to start breaking down, and you're going to start coming up with wrong interpretations. This happens all the time, right? People want to take a parable, we'll say, and they want to dissect it and describe meaning to every little part. Then they got this weird theology they've come up with, right? But I just took the parable. But a parable is not, it's an analogy. It's not designed to, it's not a strict theological treatise where every part means something, right? I mean, Jesus often prefaced parables by saying, the kingdom 
of, of heaven is like. Not exactly like, but kind of like. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's talking about branches that seem to be attached but are not, and then those who are really attached, right? Um, but here, again, the in me in John 15 is only an apparent connection, not a real one. How do I know? Jesus has counterfeit believers or phony Christians in view here and not real ones well first of all they don't bear fruit we said that number one number two they don't abide and we'll end with this number three they are destroyed they are destroyed verse six if anyone does not abide in me he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned three things why we know he's not talking about believers first of all these folks are cast out cast out jesus said that a person who doesn't abide in him is cast out and burned, sent to hell. This can't be talking about true Christians because Jesus said in John 6, concerning those who truly come to him with saving faith, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Okay? They're withered. Well, we looked last week at Matthew 13. You can go back and look at those parables, and I'm thinking primarily the parable of the sower. So I'm going to draw on the fact that you were here and, and know what I was talking about. Otherwise, you can go online, listen to that. But these folks are withered. And they can't be true believers because they're withered, right? They're, they're cast out withered, okay? Uh, Matthew 13, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, Some fell on the seed, some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, they, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth but when the sun was up uh, they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away now if you go back and, and revisit what we talked about uh, the three types of soil that the seed falls in the seed being the word only one gets saved the hard heart we know that's okay the middle two the the thorny soil the shallow soil they never bring forth fruit right the point of agriculture is bearing fruit not foliage Jesus didn't say, you'll know mother foliage. He said, you know mother fruit. That was the whole point. Some people say, well, those two are saved too, just carnal. I don't believe that. I believe that he is talking about one flat-out unbeliever, one flat-out unfire Christian, and two that come to church and hear the word and get excited many times, but they don't ever change. They don't really accept Christ into their heart. They're Judas branches, okay? Uh, when Jesus interpreted this in Matthew 13, he said, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Uh, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately, he stumbles. He, he didn't sign up for this. So he leaves. He doesn't bear fruit, right? So withered. Thirdly burned. Again, Matthew 13, verse 30. When Jesus gave the parable of the uh, sower of the uh, um, tares, in the, tares in the wheat, okay, and um, a man sowed good seed in his field. When the seed began to grow, his servants noticed well there was wheat and there was tares, weeds. And they said, "Well, master, how is that possible? You sowed, we sowed good seed in your field." Should we rip out the tares? He says, no, lest you rip out some of the wheat. Let them grow until the harvest. And at that time, 
of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Later, he explains that in Matthew 13, starting with verse 40. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send his angels, uh, send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, verse 42, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just. You get the idea? The wicked from the just and cast the, the wicked into a furnace of fire. And uh, there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. The point is... All throughout the New Testament, the Bible tells us that there are people that come to church and are not genuinely saved. And this is something that God wanted us to understand. Okay, I'll have you turn to one more scripture. We'll close. Matthew 7. Of course, you all know it, right? Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I had a guy come up to me years ago who believed a Christian could lose their salvation. He tried to show me this passage. And I said, well, it says, Jesus, I never knew you. Not I knew you for a while, but then, you know, you lost your salvation. And he just stared at me. He had never seen it. There are things in the Bible that we, we read over so quickly, we don't see things. Let me just say this, and we'll close. Jesus Christ... And you ought to read the end of Matthew 7. We may revisit it briefly next week. I don't know. We'll see. But in, in Matthew 7, at the end there, Jesus is giving all, listen, all Judas branches a solemn warning. Make sure you're not deceiving yourself. Are you really saved? Are you really born again? Are you really a member of the kingdom of God? Because a lot of people are going to come to me on the day of judgment thinking they're saved. They were in ministry. They might have had a gigantic TV ministry. Did they cast out demons and work miracles? Well, they thought they did. And yet they're going to stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment and come to a horrible reality. They were never saved. They were never saved. And Jesus said, you wait till the day of judgment to examine yourself and figure this out is too late. So do it now, right? And by the way, these are not atheists, agnostic, secularist. They're not even mildly Christian. These are rabid churchgoers. They're involved in ministry. Lord, Lord, it's emphatic. They're, they, they really believe what they believe. And we're involved in ministry and so on not realizing that you can be involved in ministry, you can come to church, you can believe everything uh, a genuine Christian believes, like 
The devil and his demons believe everything about Christ we believe. They're not saved, but we are. Because it's not just about what you know. It's about receiving Jesus into your heart, you know? And so we will continue this next week, but understand that the church is full of Judas branches, tares, goats, whatever you want to call them. The church is full of them. And to accommodate them, many churches have lowered the standard and given them the feeling that, oh, you're right with God, you're saved, you know. Why did they say that? Because they want to keep people in the pews. They want to make the church bigger and bigger. And that's, that's tragic. And they will stand before God someday and give an account, pastors. But I'm just giving you what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And some in our own church, I'm, I, I'm fearful to say, might stand before the Lord and hear him say that. This is the day of salvation. This is the time when you examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Don't take for granted. Oh, I went to Awanas. I was baptized. I went to Sunday school. Big deal. Satan and his demons went to Sunday school every time the doors are open, trying to manipulate, trying to take young hearts away from God. So we'll look at more of this study next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, in these last days when so much deception is rampant, we pray that you would give us grace uh, as believers to, to, to stand with you in the truth, um, not to shy away from it, not to lower the standard, but Lord, to share the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, that we might, Lord, be your servants and instruments. We just thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.